want to encourage you, if you will, to take your Bibles and turn to the Gospel of John, John chapter 17. We're taking a bit of a break from Luke this month, uh, doing a series that we are calling A Peculiar People. We're going to be looking at a variety of different reminders, if you will, of how we stand distinct in the world and what that looks like for us as the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. Today we begin in John chapter 17 um, as we take a look at unity, and what Jesus prayed for in his high priestly prayer. Uh, let's go to the Lord and ask him to help us as we consider his word. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that it is true and trustworthy. And Lord, we do pray that you would change us by it today. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Well, here in John chapter 17, we know this as the high priestly prayer. High priestly prayer that Jesus prayed shortly before his arrest. Uh, and in this prayer, Jesus prays several things. It's, it's pretty lengthy prayer. It's 26 verses or so. And we know that there's a lot for which he prayed for in it. In the first five verses, he prayed for his own glorification, uh, that he would be glorified. And then he moves from that as he anticipates the future. Then he moves on and, and begins to pray the rest of the prayer. He's praying for his disciples. He prays very specifically for them. In, the first, uh, in verses 6 through 19, he's praying for his immediate disciples, those who are with him in the ministry those that we would know later as the apostles, and namely praying for their protection and their sanctification and, and their well-being spiritually. But then he moves beyond them in verse 20, and he prays for all believers, all who would believe. And so the things that he's prayed for already in the verses 6 through 19, he adds to that and includes now all Christians, all who would believe. Uh, and he prays for their uh, protection, their sanctification. He prays for these things, but he also prays for unity. And while certainly we can glean much from this prayer, we could spend weeks in this prayer looking at a variety of different things here in chapter 17. What we're going to do today is we're going to zero in on a particular aspect of this prayer where Jesus prays for the unity of his people. And he begins that. Uh, he, he references it indirectly throughout the prayer, but we see it very specifically highlighted beginning in verse 20. And that's where I want to pick up this morning uh, in John 17. I want to read verses 20 down through uh, the end of the prayer. So this is the word of the Lord as we look at John chapter 17. I want to pick up in the midst of this prayer in verse 20. Jesus prays, I do not ask for these only, he's referring to his disciples, I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one, even as we are one. I in them, and you in me, that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me and love them even as you loved me. Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given me, may be with me where I am to see my glory that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. 
O righteous Father, even though the world does not know you, I know you, and these know you. These know that you have sent me. I made known to them your name, and I will continue to make it known that the love with which you have loved me may be in them, and I in them. I don't think I have to convince any of us today that we live in a divided age. We live in a divided age. Christians, too, certainly experience these kinds of things in this world, divisions. We're not immune from division. A cursory read of church history will show you just how often this has been the case, even in the church. And sometimes division has been needed because of primary doctrines that needed to be defended. And so you had many of the early church councils, which happened as a, as a, as a way to preserve what was true. You had the Protestant Reformation that came about later on, preserving that which was true regarding the gospel, regarding the word of God uh, specifically. But at other times, we know that division trickles into the church and you see it taking place not over primary doctrines and not even over secondary doctrines, but over tertiary matters or other things that are left to the Christian conscience. Jesus would have certainly known and anticipated these kinds of divisions, and he would have known that, those things both short-term and long-term. He's praying for his disciples, but also those who would believe through them for the entirety of the church. And so he prays for them. He prays for us, and namely he's praying here that we would be one, that we would be one. So how can we be one? How can we be truly unified? How can we be one when the cultural air we breathe is marked by, known for, its division and its factions? How can the church stand distinct in the world, peculiar in the world, when it comes to our oneness, our unity? What is it? What does it look like? Why is it so important? Why did Jesus prioritize it in his prayer? I mean, one of the things that he's prioritizing as he prays to his Father right before he goes to the cross, he's praying for unity. Well, since Jesus prayed for unity, we know that we are called to maintain, to guard unity. And as we look at this high priestly prayer this morning, we're going to see several aspects of unity that I think that will, first of all, we, we must seek to understand if we're going to remain unified as the people of God. We're not talking about uniformity. We're talking about unity. What is it? What does it look like? How do we pursue it and those kinds of things? Several aspects of unity that we're going to explore in this prayer. Uh, really, we're going to go back also throughout the beginning of this prayer, see some things and some other passages as well. So let's look at this together. First of all, we're going to be talking about and looking at the foundation of our unity. What unites us as God's people? The foundation of our unity. One of the first things that you and I need to understand about Christian unity is that it is supernatural. This is not something you and I create. It's not something that we establish. It's something God creates. It is something God establishes that God grants. And he does so 
in and through the gospel. We know the unity is something highlighted throughout this prayer. You can go even back to verse 11, where Jesus is praying there early on in the prayer. He says, I'm no longer in the world, but they are in the world, and I'm coming to you, Holy Father. Keep them in your name, which you have given me, that they may be one. So he's praying for unity. You see in verses 20 through 23 specifically, the same. When we think about unity, when we think about maintaining unity and pursuing unity, there we know that there has to be something that brings us together, right? I mean, you can see unity all in the world today. People unite around a variety of different things coming from different backgrounds, but they're united on a particular cause or a particular sports team or a particular whatever. Unity has to have some object that brings people together. And the very thing that unites us together as Christians, as I said, is the gospel of Jesus Christ. Looking back in this prayer, we see the foundation of our unity. In fact, if you go back to verse 6, Jesus prays there. He says, he says, I have manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. Yours they were, and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. Now they know that everything that you have given me is from you, for I've given them the words that you gave me. They have received them and have come to know in truth that I came from you, and they have believed that you sent me. I'm praying for them. I'm not praying for the world, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. All mine are yours, and yours are mine, and I am glorified in them. Notice a couple of things that Jesus says there as he's praying. He's referring to those whom he's praying for as those the Father has given him. He's praying not for the world, not for everyone equally, but for a designated group of people whom he says the Father has given to him. These the Father gave to Jesus, we're told, have kept the word given to them. Namely, they have received the truth about Jesus, they've believed it, and they've trusted in it, and they are persevering in that belief. So those Jesus is praying for here are those who are united by the sovereign grace of God by calling them out of the world and granting them grace and calling them and and the Father saying, these are my people. These are the ones whom you are to pursue. So Jesus is praying for those who are united together by grace. Brothers and sisters, we, every one of us, whether in this room or watching on the live stream, all of us have unique testimonies. Be a beautiful thing that just have everyone come up and just kind of share in two or three minutes how God saved you. My guess is while there would be some similarity maybe in experience, all of us would have unique testimonies of how God saved us in unique, within the circumstances in which he placed us. We all have unique testimonies regarding the circumstances of how we came to Christ. Everyone's story is going to be different. How you came to know Christ will vary, but the way by which you were saved does not. There will be a common theme in everyone's testimony. No matter how radical of an experience you had, there will be a common uniting reality that we were sinful, God exposed us as to who we are in our sin. He revealed to us by his word that he sent his son into the world to be 
the sin bearer. He lived a perfect life, but he died on the cross to bear the penalty and shame and guilt of our sin. And if we would believe in him, we would be forgiven and saved forever. That same truth is the same truth that has saved all of us and every other Christian that has ever lived. Our stories vary, but the truth does not. All of us have been redeemed by the same grace, through the same Savior, into the same family. Whether that was over time or whether that was suddenly, through the ministry of a family member or a friend or in a large gathering, all of us were redeemed by the same good news, the same gift of grace. Jesus is highlighting that. He said, I've manifest your name to the people you gave me. They believed it. They believed the word. They came in hope. Brothers and sisters, we need to remember that the gift we've been given in the gospel was not rooted in anything within anything inside ourselves. It was not rooted in the disciples. They were given by the Father. We were given by the Father. And so our unity is rooted in that good news that though we were sinners and deserved the judgment of God, in his grace, he in his kindness gave us to his son to redeem. Friends, that is the good news of the gospel. And when we lose unity in the church or when we begin to allow division to to emerge within congregation after congregation after congregation, when we lose unity in the church, it's usually because something has become more important to us than the gospel, than Jesus. There'll be lots of things, lots of things that will seek to distract us from the good news of Jesus Christ. The world is intent upon division. Satan is a deceiver and would love nothing more than to see God's people divided over secondary, tertiary, matters of the conscience, other things outside of the gospel. In fact, I've not done research on every single church, but at least of the churches I know of that have had internal conflicts, most church splits, most church conflicts are not based on gospel issues. It's not because they're, they're fighting over whether or not Jesus died for their sin. They're getting caught up in other things. I'm not saying they're not important things. I'm just saying they're not ultimate things. Typically driven by these other issues, things that are entirely issues of the conscience. This is one of the areas I see most often. It's matters of the conscience. We have freedom to do this or to do that, and yet churches and Christians get all caught up in those things. And certainly, friends, sometimes we must address those matters and lean into conversations regarding those topics and those matters, but we must remember that our unity is not dependent upon how much alignment we have on issues outside of the gospel. Our unity is rooted primarily in first and foremost, in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Our unity is not bound up in a translation of scripture, an evangelistic strategy, types of ministry that we have, the type of school you choose for your children, or the demographics of our members. Our unity is based upon Christ and Christ alone. 
rooted in the gospel. That's what defines us. That's what marks us out as distinct from the world. And no matter what background you come from, no matter what political ideology you may prefer, no matter your ethnicity, no matter your employment, what unites you as a Christian is grace. The work of Jesus Christ to redeem you from your sins. That is the foundation of our unity. What about the expression? What does it look like? What is, uni- what, what is this, unity? I'm going to talk, number two, about the expression, the expression of our unity. So if the gospel is the source of our unity, the next question would be, well, what does this unity look like? If you look back at verses 20 through 23, Jesus praying, he says, I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have been, that you give, the glory that you've given me, I've given to them, that they may be one, even as we are one. The glory that you have given me, he says, I've given them, that they may become perfectly one. See, the unity Jesus prays for us to exhibit is a unity that exists, it, that exists first and foremost in the Godhead, in the Trinity, Father, Son, and Spirit. And certainly this is indeed a peculiar unity, the unity that, exe- that exists in the Godhead, in, uh, between Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, is a unity that, we, that, that is unlike anything else in this world. And it's not merely a unity that highlights the the closeness of those relationships, but it's also one that points to unity of purpose and intention of the work that Father, Son, and Holy Spirit do together. I want you to see several ways, and we could really unpack this for a long time, but I just want to point out a, a few ways that we see this unity demonstrated in the Godhead himself. First of all, you see that in the Godhead, that the persons of the Godhead are united in their motive. We know in verses 1 through 5, Jesus prays to his Father. He says, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son that the Son may glorify you, since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. And this is eternal life that they may know you, the only true God in Jesus Christ whom you have sent. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had before the world, that I had with you before the world existed. So Jesus is praying. There, there is a motive of glory that's being explained here in the first five verses. The, the way that the Son relates to the Father is all for the intent of glorifying God. But he goes on in, throughout this prayer, and in fact, in verse 22, I think it is, yeah, he says, the glory that you've given me, I've given to them. So he's talking there about glory. Is it the same glory that he's referring to in the first five verses? Well, kind of, but I think he, it goes beyond that. Certainly it has in view this glorification of heaven, but when we think of glory, we need to understand what's being referred to as the manifestation of God's character and person. And Jesus, as the incarnate Son, does just that when he lived and ministered here on the earth. He's revealing the character and the purpose and the intention 
of God. The Father and Son and certainly Holy Spirit work in unison to magnify, to reveal this glory, to reveal this purpose, this motive. They're united in that. But along with that, they're united in their mission. You see back in verses 2 through 4, verse 6 as well, several things that Jesus says he came and did. Jesus came, one, to give eternal life to all the Father who had given him. Jesus came to accomplish the work that the Father had given him. Jesus came to manifest the Father's name to those whom the Father had given him. Jesus came to give them the words of the Father. Jesus came to guard and protect them. So you see this mission, this work that Christ came to accomplish, to give eternal life, to accomplish the work the Father had given. Jesus wasn't just on his own mission. He didn't get bored in heaven one day and say, I think I'll go down to earth and just do some stuff. He was sent by his Father with one motive, with one purpose, to be the Savior of sinners. Father and Son were in full accord with one another. The Father sent the Son, and the Son revealed the Father. Or we could say the Father ordained the work that the Son accomplished, and now the Spirit applies. See the union, the the unity in this work. You see it in the Godhead. But they are also united in their message. And look at verse 8. He says, for I have given them the words that you gave me. Jesus says, Father, you gave me words. I gave them to them, to your people. I've given them the words you gave me, and they have received them and have come to know in truth that I came from you. And the words there likely a reference to the whole plan of redemption, the, the work that Christ came to accomplish. Later in verse 14, he says, I have given them your word. See, this united mission was about revealing this certain word, this specific word. The oneness of the Godhead was a oneness that brought forth the truth, ultimately the truth we know is the word of God and the word of God bearing forth the testimony of God's plan to redeem. So when Jesus prays for us to be one, just like he and the Father are one, these are the kinds of things he's praying for to happen in us. When he says, In verse 22, the glory that you've given me, I've given to them that they may be one even as we are one. These are the kinds of things. This is the glory for which he's praying for in us. He's not praying that we will all look the same, that we will worship in the same ways, that we will do ministry the same way. He's calling us to a supernatural oneness that reflects the oneness of the Godhead in purpose and intent. Much of that has to do with our motive, our mission, our message. You think about our motive, we are committed to doing all that we're called to do to the glory of God. We're called to make manifest in this world through our living, through our corporate witness, through our individual witness. We're called to manifest the character and purposes of God. Think about our mission, we are called to express our unity In the mission of God, just as the Father, Son, and Spirit work in unison, distinct persons. I know it blows our minds. It's hard to explain. You have one God, yet three persons, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, distinct persons, yet one common mission, 
Father sends the Son. The Son accomplishes the work of the Father, and the Spirit applies it to the people of God. Look at verse 18. He's praying for his people there, and he says in verse 18, As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. See, we are called. Part of our unity is a calling to engage in the mission of God, to be sent forth as ambassadors. We're going to talk more next week about what that means as ambassadors, as those who are part of the ministry of reconciliation. So we have a common mission, but we also have a common message, a calling to be unified in our commitment to proclaiming the word of God. Our oneness is not based upon what the world would tell us, but on what the world reveals to us. We're united around the authority of God's word. In Paul's letter to the Corinthians, we see that Paul understood there would be a variety in God's kingdom, yet in all our differences and all our distinctions, we have the same Lord and the same goal. 1 Corinthians 12, verses 4 through 6, quickly, he says, Now there are varieties of gifts, all kinds of different gifts, but the same spirit. There are varieties of service, but the same Lord. There are varieties of activities, but it's the same God who empowers them all in everyone. Different things happen within the church. Gifts are given, services are provided, things are done in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ to serve the advance of the gospel and the making of the disciples, but it's the same God, the same Lord who sees it through. Just a reminder, friends, that even though we may have different gifts, we have the same Lord. Our unity, our unity is in the gospel. Our unity is to be reflective of what we see even in the Godhead. You know, we may see lots of different things happening within the kingdom of God. We may, we, we may see lots of differences, different churches, different languages, different cultures, different kinds of ministries, different styles of worship, different focuses and here and there and all we could say. And this is oftentimes where we get tripped up in these differences, thinking that these are primary things that we have to impose on everyone. That's called legalism. It's not where we find our unity. Our unity is not that everybody has an ESV, although you should, right? Of course not. Our unity is not found in anything outside of the gospel, ultimately. It's the gospel that brings us together. And sure, there are things we are called to do through obedience, through the commandments and other things that we need to be in alignment with, for sure. There's implications of the gospel. We're called to be reflecting the unity that we see in the Godhead. This is what Jesus prayed for. Friends, if you think that Jesus found it important enough to pray for, shouldn't it be important enough for us to, pri- for us to prioritize? To hear from Ephesians chapter 4, this is Paul writing to the church at Ephesus. Notice what he says. He says, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called. Though not a suggestion, it's an urge. (laughs) Notice what he says. I urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called. How? With all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager 
to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. That is the call there, the responsibility that we have as God's people is to maintain unity. We don't create it, God creates it. He creates, he establishes unity through the gospel. We're called to maintain, to cultivate, to guard that unity for which Jesus prayed. And we do it with humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love when we're irritated at each other, that we love each other, bearing, understanding that although we may be different on these things outside of the gospel, it's the gospel that unites us and brings us together that makes us brothers and sisters in Christ. We should strive to reflect that unity at all cost. And we should never obstruct, seek to obstruct this glory, this unity for which Christ called us to and prayed for by allowing certain kinds of worldly division to trickle in. Brothers and sisters, this is good to remember. When we look at God himself, we see a unity on display Our unity is to be visible, which leads me to the number three, the last point about unity that we see here in this prayer is the results of our unity. What happens when churches and Christians pursue to maintain, what happens when we seek to maintain unity? Well, you see that here in the text, don't you? Notice what he says in verse 21. He says, that they may be all one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us. So there's this union we have with, with, with God. Why? So that the world may believe you have sent me. He doesn't just say that once, does he? He says it again. Verse 22, the glory that you've given me, I've given to them that they may be one even as we are one. Verse 23, I in them, you in me that they may become perfectly one. Why? So that the world may know that you sent me and love them even as you loved me. Brothers and sisters, our unity is one of the ways we do evangelism. So that the world may know you sent me. Jesus says that twice. Our unity is an evangelistic necessity. It's an apologetic to the world that says something is different with those people. Something happened to this, look at them. They're so different in every other sense of the word, but yet they love each other. They're together. It just confuses the world. Folks, we know we live in a divided and fragmented world, and you don't need to look to Washington to see that. You don't need a pandemic to show how divided we are. You can trace this division all the way back to a garden called Eden. It goes all the way back there. It's always been since that day Adam and Eve fell. As I said, Christian unity, though, is is a huge apologetic to the truth of the gospel. Christian unity is the only true and lasting unity possible. And when that unity is on display, it will be irresistible. People are drawn to it. Thomas Manton, an old, an old English Puritan, said, divisions in the church breed atheism in the world. Divisions in the church breed atheism in the world. And I would say the converse is true as well. 
While divisions in the church may breed atheism in the world, unity in the church may draw people to believe. My personal conviction is there could not be a more important word for us to hear today than something like this. We have every opportunity available to us to be divided. Right? Some of, there's that potential right now. Some of you are maybe irritated about these things. Some of you are frustrated that you had to put them on to come in this room. Some of you wouldn't be in this room had we not required it. See the opportunity there for division? We have every opportunity to be divided, an upcoming election, and on and on we can go. And not only are there endless opportunities to be divided, there are endless opportunities to let everybody know about it. The blessing of social media has created a platform for us to sow more division than any other tool I'm I'm aware of today. Friends, just remember that every post you make, every debate you choose to engage, every political and pandemic fight you take up in view of the world, you are, one way or the other, making a statement about Christ. You are making a declaration about the unity that you have in the gospel when you speak in this world today. So my question is, are you doing more to display your unity in the gospel or are you doing more to divide and push people away from it? Brothers and sisters, Jesus prayed that our unity would attract, that it would be attractive, not push away, so that the world may know, he said. Look what else this unity does. It not only shows the world and, and, and draws the world to the truth of the gospel, it also authenticates the Father's love for believers. It says, I and them, you and me, verse 23, that they may become perfectly one so the world may know that you sent me and love them even as you love me. So our unity in this strange way is a testimony to the truth of the gospel so that others will believe, so that the world may know that the Father sent the Son, but also that the world may know that the Father loves us and that our love for him and that our love for one another is reflective of the love that he has, even the love that he's given the Son. It's a demonstration that we've been loved by the Father with the very same love he has given to the Son. And so when we pursue and reflect the unity for which Christ prayed, we are showing ourselves to be the objects of God's amazing love. So brothers and sisters, our unity, our unity was meant, intended, even when Jesus prayed for, he's not praying for something just to kind of be hidden, pushed off to the side and so we can enjoy in our own little corner. He's praying for a supernatural reality, a unity where we are grounded together, rooted together as brothers and sisters because of the gospel. He's praying for this unity to be visible as an apologetic to the world and as an evangelistic invitation to believe in Christ. It was meant to be observed as a testimony to the world and as an affirmation for the church itself. Well, last year, 
the Washington Nationals won the World Series. There was a big celebration shortly after a parade that happened up in D.C., so me and my oldest daughter Rachel went up to the parade, and we were in the streets there with 10,000, who knows how many people, thousands, tens of thousands of people, people from all backgrounds. There were black folk, white folk, brown folk, rich folk, poor folk, middle class folk, men, women, adults, children, all there for the same reason, celebrating this amazing victory that no one ever expected. A sea of so many different kinds of people, but all together for one purpose, celebrating one victory. It was an electric time, and I soon won't forget it. It was exciting to be there. But friends, the church has something even greater to celebrate. Something even better to unite around. And not only for a few hours in D.C., in November. Friends, it's this hope that we have in the gospel that unites us, that makes us who we are, that brings us together and makes us who we are together to to remind us that this is why we exist and this is what we're about, not for a season, but for a lifetime. Until we see Jesus and we are perfectly one. Church, we are called to be a peculiar people. And part of that peculiarness, part of that being distinct in the world should be evidenced by our unity. In one sense, we are unified in Christ through his finished work. In one sense, Christ has accomplished unity for his people. But in another sense, our experience of unity is not yet perfected. Therefore, we are called to maintain it. The Lord calls us to unity. Jesus secured our unity, and he prayed for this unity. So in this divided age, brothers and sisters, we cannot afford to get distracted and live divided. We will have our differences. We will speak our opinions. But the way we do that should never be done in a way to compromise the glorious unity that we have in Jesus Christ and in him alone. May our prayer and may our lives be in alignment with the very thing Jesus prayed for and gave his life for. Let's pray together. Father, we're grateful that you give us your word to teach us and to instruct us and to show us and to remind us, to convict us. Father, we can easily lose sight of who we're called to be in a world that is filled with so many things. Sometimes our our hearts get diverted, our our, our attention gets diverted to, to, to important things, but Lord, not ultimate things. And we begin to make the unimportant things or the lesser important things ultimate things. God, would you guard us from doing that? And would you help us to rally around that which is indeed ultimate? The truth that we have in knowing you, who you are, and what you've done for us in the gospel. 
that our unity would be solidified because of this redemptive work of grace that you have done, that you have accomplished, that you have given for the world. So Father, would you help us as a church to be reflective of the very things for which Jesus prayed? That we would be a unified, a radically unified people, radically unified around the good news of Jesus Christ, that we would be a testimony to this community and to this world of what grace does and what grace is. Father, would you help us to that end, not only for our sake, but Lord, ultimately for your glory, for your name's sake. Do this in us, we pray, in Jesus' name.